Tim, alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah. Don't Thank, you. It, Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. My wife always says inside voice. Um, Tim, alcoholic, and um, I am absolutely enthralled with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, it is uh, the greatest gift I was given, and uh, everything that I thought I was looking for outside, in the bottle, other distractions, I found here. And um, my spiritual journey started from my gift of desperation. My gift of desperation was my alcoholism, my bottom, and it was via that willingness, that surrender, that put me on a, a path. And uh, I'm a class of 05, and I, um, I couldn't envision my life any other way than the way I perform it right now. And uh, with that, I'll just start off uh, from the beginning. Uh, one of my earliest memories uh, was age five. I was already a problem child. And um, I remember I was being escorted by my father back to the hospital I was born in, in Manhattan. And I remember he had let my hand go and I was like lagging behind and he was walking a little bit ahead of me. And I had already gotten a lot of feedback about my behavior at age five. And uh, you know, it crossed my mind that like something was up, you know, like this is the place I was born, you know, like they're taking me back. And um, <laughs> we get in the elevator and we go downstairs and it's a huge stadium seating type auditorium. And uh, it's not the normal AA meeting spot, but they are setting up for an AA meeting. It's the group's anniversary, so they have a bigger space. And a guy walks up to my father. My father's in the program. Father's same name. Says, uh, Tim, uh, Joe just got brought in yet again. And at age five, I thought something had happened to him. He had gotten you know, beat up or mugged or something, you know, and it wasn't until later on in my career that I realized this was the group's chronic slipper. And he was back in the hospital in the ER for detox yet again. Um, I was also uh, struck by how everybody knew my father, like they're all setting up balloons and they're doing all this, and women over here and guys are over there, and they're like, everybody knew my father, and I was like, wow, I thought my father was a little introverted, you know, like, you know, he didn't talk too much, but like, these guys are like really working with him. And uh, so uh, I'll just fast forward into another image I had was walking around Manhattan with him and like all the age seven, eight, nine, I could just remember like somebody yelling out from a cab, hello, and a, a guy sticking his head out of a window and come on up, you know, no, I got the kid with me, you know, and walking by on the street and a guy go like that. And I'm like, how does he know all these people? So that struck with me. Um, unfortunately, my dad did die early, sober, uh, with 10 years sobriety. Uh, I was 12. And, um, and I heard this like little background story that um, he had died on a bus and he was going to an AA Super Bowl party. And uh, that was all the detail I had. I mean, I was only 12. I, I don't know if I could have handled much more detail. Not that it would have been relevant. But um, I'm, in the, uh, I'm in the wake. 12 years old, places packed, family, lots of AA dudes. And uh, a guy comes up to me and says, your father told me all about you and shook my hand. He emphasized the all. 
And this beam of shame came inside of me of the family secrets were out there. And that was something that like went way back in my subconscious. And um, soon after that, again, at age 12, I'm on a uh, vacation in Puerto Rico with my aunt. And somehow I get away from her and I'm down on the beach, I mean, literally in the sand. And I meet some other boys and they're drinking rum. I weasel my way in on this thing, you know, and like we're passing the bottle around. And one dude turns to me and he goes, how old are you? I said, 12. He says, give me that back. You know, these guys were probably, I don't know, 15, 16 or whatever. They're like, what are you? Get out of here, you know. So uh, these are, you know, prominent images for me. I was never like playing in a park or something. It was always like something related to booze or AA. So um, my, my drinking career started around there. And uh, I escalated to daily types of, you know, uh, uh, drinking or hunting for drinks right up through age 16. So from 12 to 16, these are my early years of boozing it. And during those years, um, I had been <laughs> brought in front of the family court, the magistrate, whatever the hell they call them, um, three times. And on the third one, I was just about to turn 16, and which would have made me an adult then, and it was like a serious charge. I'm not even gonna tell you what it was. All right, it was Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> and he's like, what are we gonna do with you? And I'm like, I don't know. And he says, well, first of all, you gotta go back to high school. And I'm like, not even going to high school. And uh, I commit, you know, like he don't, won't do anything on this go around. I commit to going to high school for, you know, age 16 to 17. Um, I do the math real quick in my head and I'm like, wow, this is a losing proposition. If I start high school now, I'm going to be like 20 when I get out of here. This is not, this is not a good plan. I, somehow I, I didn't negotiate this well and I decided I'm going to go into the service. So uh, 16 and a half, I start taking the test, fill out all the sh uh, pertinent paperwork and my caregivers are more than happy to send me away. I'm going to digress for just one second. The reason why I said caregivers was I did not live with my mother. My mother and father broke up at my, basically my one year, uh, um, one year of age and went their separate ways. And my mother thought it best for me to live with my grandmother. So I had this resentment. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to identify what the emotion was, but I this emotion, and uh, that was part of what I now know as the way I then started to behave socially. <laughs> like, I'm gonna, maybe if I act in a particular way, we can fix this. And then with my dad dying, it was like this double whammy, like, holy crap, I'm screwed. I'm stuck right where I am with a grandmother and an aunt and feeling different and just not, you know, just not in the inner circles. And, um, so uh, caregivers, as I said, my grandmother signs me in to uh, be able to go into the Navy at, at 17. You'd think I would choose an aircraft carrier where you could blend in with 5,000 guys, but no, somebody mentioned there was good food on submarines. So uh, uh, the, the, the other part of that, there's only 120 guys on that, so 
I stood out. So my antisocial behavior, via booze, I was that guy. Miss Ship's movement, you know, they tell you to go this way, I'd go that way. And um, so it didn't turn out to be this great experience. I was discharged honorably, but like they were like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. So after, I, I had a three-year enlistment. I had a four-year enlistment. They made it a three-year enlistment if you went on to submarines. So at two years and three quarters, <laughs> so, um, at that time, I, had, I was living in another state, and uh, I started living. I was basically homeless then, and I started to live with a woman uh, who had a, a few kids. And a big age gap, I think it was 18 years or something about along those lines. And um, I'm partying and hanging out and doing my thing, living uh, the selfish, self-centered life. And at some point, I must have concluded that there's better stuff to do, and I rented my own apartment and I moved out. Two months after I move out, she calls up and says, I'm pregnant. I'm like, oh God. I had a big decision there. The decision was to be a, an adult, uh, to, to be a dad, to be uh, selfless, um, but I chose the party life. And I was like 21. And um, that actually, that was an opportunity after I got sober to make an amend that was um, probably the most healing amend that I made. But um, I'm, living this, I'm living this party life. And uh, then it starts, all the adult stuff. DWI number one, DWI number two, driving after revocation, writing bad checks, shoplifting. It was getting worse and worse and worse, and um, my, um, my um, plan became uh, a geographic. And I had been holding back, going back to New York, because half of the guys I grew up with were already dead. So I was 24 by then. These guys were, you know, like wild. And I didn't want to go back into that environment. And uh, now I'm sort of put myself in a position where I'm semi-forced to and I move back in with my mother. Now, of course, I did not uh, um, talk to my mother about this. I showed up with all my crap in the trunk, said I'm staying for a little bit. She thinks I'm on vacation. And one day we go out. I had to get her something out of the trunk or something. And she's like right behind me. She sees all my stuff in the trunk and she's like, you know, put two and two together. And... Uh, allowed me to stay there. And um, this is where my um, God shots start for me. And uh, they started via uh, my mother's boyfriend uh, was a uh, contractor and allowed me to work for him. And at the end of one day's work, it was a Friday afternoon, we had just finished renovating this woman's kitchen. And she had not come home from work yet. And uh, John says to me, hey, I know you're going out tonight. Go back and pick up the check later on. So I shower for my night out, and I uh, go and sit in front of her house. And I'm sitting there and sitting there, and she's not showing up. And um, I decide I'm going to go get a beer. And as I pull away, my wife tells it a different way, but I pull out, and as I pull out, the same car, different color, blonde-haired girl goes past me and we do an eye thing for one second. I go to get the beer, I come back and I pull back up to the house that I'm waiting for this woman 
and I look to my left, and Martha is taking her gym bag out of her trunk, and I open the window to be able to say something smart, like, you know, something about the cars or something like that, and she says, you following me? And uh, semi-jokingly. And uh, I got out, and uh, we talked for a few minutes and uh, closed her for dinner and a movie the next night, which I thought was pretty good. Now, why that starts my God shot is Martha's an integral part of my journey. So she had just uh, in the, uh, was separated, getting ready to be divorced, short marriage, four-year marriage, six years older than me. I like older women. <laughs> and uh, she had just gotten this beautiful apartment, and I think we went on three dates. And like, I basically moved in. Like, like, that, like, I'm like a pit bull with a bone, you know, like, I'm in, I'm not getting out of here, because if I get out of here, technically I'm homeless. So um, we're, uh, we're playing house, and uh, I'm hiding my drinking. So I would pretend, we do very sophisticated things like show up at the restaurant with the reservation, table's not ready yet, please have a seat at the bar, and we'd get cocktails at the bar. And then we'd get shown the table, and then we know, very sophisticated, I probably saw it in a movie, you switch to wine then. So we did these very cool little things. And then when I dropped her off and said I was going to go see Tommy or Joey, you know, I did the real drinking. So she didn't know to what extent I was um, addicted. And uh, I'm two years in on this gig, so now I'm like 27. And uh, I remember vividly uh, having her sit down at the edge of the uh, bed and saying, listen, honey, I'm, uh, I'm going to go to AA. Now, I left out a little bit because I didn't think it was germane, but I had a little exposure with AA because of those DWIs. But I always did it where it was non-participatory. Five minutes before the meeting, immediately after, don't raise my hand and don't ask for a sponsor. You know? So uh, that was sort of my training. I came, I came to this conclusion of sitting Martha down at age 27. That's what I thought AA was. You went to meetings. You feel squirrely, you go to a meeting. So uh, with not much of a bottom at all, other than some fear of being homeless, which I guess is a bottom, right? Uh, I start going to meetings at lunch in Manhattan, you know, several per week. And uh, I do it the exact same way. No home group, no sponsor, no steps. Well, I mean, I did the steps. I mean, when you're sitting there, you, like, you need two people to go through that? Like, you guys even have the condensed version. You go faster, right? So um, I didn't think that there was any necessity to surrender to the process. And um, so I'm 27, and God has a sense of humor. And God's humor is he removes the desire to drink immediately. And I left out how disgusting my drinking and using was. I went to places where you wiped your feet on the way out. For that to be the case, for me to be not um, completely obsessed with the drink, 
so quickly blew my mind. But it was a trick. So I participated in AA in this fashion. First six years, I went to five meetings a week, four meetings a week, three meetings a week, two meetings a week, one meeting a week. So I picked up a medallion for six straight years with no real being in AA. Second six years, I didn't even go. Age 27 to 40, didn't even cross my mind to drink. Started a career, bought a house, got a dog. <clears throat> no struggle whatsoever. Life was good. Read some great books on mental fortitude, went to therapy, little couples therapy with the wife, hitting a home run. Why do you go to a meeting? Only because you're squirrely. If you're not squirrely, why would you go waste your time? Didn't have anybody to train me. Didn't know what the point was. I'm on a different wavelength. So uh, I'm age 40. I'm on a business trip in a very exotic Philadelphia. And uh, we're at a Cuban restaurant. And um, a guy across from me says, Cuban restaurant, got to get rum. Too much of a leap for me. 12 years, no drinking. Rum, uh, Coors Light. And you know what? If I'm wrong, no harm, no foul. I'll just go back to meetings. I'll sit in the seat through osmosis. I will get the power, small p, power to stay away from drink. Six months into my experiment, I now have, oh, well, I go back to Manhattan uh, that Monday, and like a miracle, something's happened where every Irish pub now has a blackboard outside that says, burger and a beer, 10 bucks. This even makes financial sense now. <laughs> so six months, and I get the beer gut, I do the Dr. Bob experiment, right? <laughs> but don't worry, because I'm up late one night, and uh, I see an Atkins commercial on TV. And I find out vodka doesn't have any carbs. So this could actually turn into a health thing now. <laughs> so I'm convinced I'm the smartest guy. I start walking around with Poland spring bottles of water that have vodka in them, and I'm walking around seeing clients. And. Um, uh, as I said, I'm six months in, uh, uh, right, and then I go to vodka. Now I'm a year into this experiment, and I go, oops, made a mistake. And um, I, go to, I go to one of those meetings that I was going to in the past. Didn't work. Next day, I had a drink. Tried it again. Didn't work. Again, and again, and again, and again. So that whole next year... It's all failures in AA. I don't like failures adding up. So I give up. I am now at the point where it, I think it's punitive. God is actually teaching me a lesson. And for one year, I'm in this hopeless state where I'm just riding the train to the last stop. My, um, my last drink is um, in Smith & Walensky's Steakhouse, and we've taken over the restaurant, 
And um, at the last minute, I've been told I don't have to go. My client canceled. I can go do my lunch on my own, uh, which I do. And um, I see Sean, the bartender, who knows me well. And I get the call at about 2 o'clock, and it says... A lot of guys have left. We need people back here to entertain. You know, like, we got to keep this thing going. It's a party, Tim. You got the right guy. I'm in a cab. I'm up to Smith & Walensky's. I walk in like I'm going to put the place on fire. <laughs> and my boss has his card up on the bar. And I start buying drinks for everybody standing at the bar. They move from the restaurant into the bar now. We're all standing. There's at least 40 people. And a couple of people that are not even with us. And... Uh, the bartender's giving me the eye, you know, because he sees that I'm just like, I'm going over the top. And these guys over here, they're not even with us. Get them drinks too, you know. So um, the next thing you know, I'm in a fight. Well, I mean, that's not really true. The other guy's in a fight. I'm on the floor. And um, <laughs> we're both ejected from the place. And a couple of the guys that I worked with um, were probably bored with the party by then anyway. But we went over to another bar. And uh, I remember my last drink being ordered for me. And uh, I remember taking it and putting it to my lips, and I couldn't drink any more that night. Literally and figuratively, I couldn't drink any more. And I remember putting the drink down, faking like I was going to the bathroom, went off on my way. Next image I remember is being awoken by a police officer. It's about 11 o'clock at night. He's pushing me with his foot. And I've passed out on brownstone steps. It's not lost on me that these brownstone steps look exactly like 182 Clinton Street. So I'm on these steps. He's pushing me. He's not allowing me to uh, talk my way out of it. I told him, don't worry. I'm, I'm leaving a minute. You know, he says, no, the lady called. Give me your ID. And the fear of God came through me. Now, I left out a lot of police interaction. This was not a big deal for me. What was a big deal was, this guy was gonna bring me to the precinct and call my wife and tell her that I've been drinking. I've been hiding this for three years. It's been my most energy absorbing thing I've been doing. And it's gonna be over in three seconds because of this guy? The fear of God was amazing to me. Like that was a big deal for me. I'm a liar. And, uh, He's got his hand on the top of my head and he's pushing his knee in the back of my knee to put me in the back of the police car. And uh, I'm not resisting, but my body's just not working right. And uh, out of the corner of my eye, a guy rides by in a 10-speed bike. And he looked exactly like a bike messenger, if you know what that look looks like. He swoops back around and he says to the cop, I'm in AA, I'll take care of him. Now, I don't know about you, but cops are not called to the scene. Me, dressed fully in a suit, this guy's got short pants, a beat-up 10-speed bike, long hair, cut-off thing, looks like he lives on the East Village. You don't turn these two, the liability alone could be just astronaut, you know, guy ends up dead, you know, in the front page of the next day. But God was in the picture here, so that made this makes sense. And uh, he turned me over to this AA messenger. Now, the AA messenger did not beat me up with his big book. He did not tell me, here's my number, call me tomorrow. He didn't ask for my number. 
He made sure I was safe and I got on that bus. And he told the driver where I was going, told him where I was, you know, where I was getting off. And um, uh, I look my wife, I walk into my house, I look my wife directly in the face and I said, I wasn't drinking. And I uh, passed out, woke up in the morning, I'm lying, I'm sitting on my lazy boy chair with an in ankle injury, my glasses are all screwed up and I'm down in the basement trying to wire them back together again. It's, uh, it's not a pretty sight. And I'm sitting in that chair and she's getting me ice for my ankle and an intuitive thought came to me. Not me, an intuitive thought came to me, which was, if I'm not honest with my wife, this will not end. Honesty, step one, honesty. And uh, that doesn't do me any good if I don't have the courage. But because of that willingness, because of the surrender to that intuitive thought, not resisting it, I then had the courage to say, hon, I've been drinking for three years. And um, she's a little discombobulated, but neither here nor there. I go to that same meeting. That was Saturday. I go to that same meeting that had failed me repeatedly, that I had given up on, sat in the same damn row, raised my hand and said, Tim, two days. Um, guy next to me, his name's Marshall. They have a service position there called... Um, Sponsorship coordinator. He raises his hand and says, anybody need to sponsor, come see me. End of the meeting, I turned to Marshall. I said, Marshall, I need a sponsor. And he says, I've got the sponsor for you. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, damn it. And then I said, well, what's his name? He said, Big Book John. <laughs> you don't have Easy Eddie? I mean, like, Big Book John. Well, it turned out Big Book John was not a big book per se, you know, the way we'd envision it. It's just that he always went to a, this Friday Big Book meeting. They had five meetings a week and one was a Big Book meeting. They always went to that meeting, so they just called him Big Book John. But he was a service maniac. He had 16 years at the time, probably had four commitments, finishing up his master's in LCSW, uh, had a full-time job, had just gotten married uh, with a ready-made family. I mean, the guy was on fire. He was at the, uh, the, at the area level, at the district level, at Sheraday, you know, he's like... So he says, uh, um, he, he comes over to me and we meet, and he says, okay, see me here tomorrow. And then, like, the, the grand sponsor, Nestor, comes over and he says, did you get a sponsor yet? And I said, yes, and this guy's even more wired than John. And um, I show up the next day, he says, okay, you're greeting from now on. You're the greeter. And there's like two rooms, there's 150 people every day, five days a week, 75 going there, 75 going there. You're gonna choose, you're gonna bang back and forth and you're gonna say hello to everybody. So um, day one, uh, day two, that's, that was my experience. And then it was set up all the chairs. I don't like the way they're set up, move them closer. you know. Oh, and you're doing the coffee and literature commitment. Go to Intergroup and get this list. It was $700 worth of literature. I'm like, what, are you kidding me? Like, how do you get all this back? Can I take a cab? He says, if you want, but we're not paying for it. <laughs> so I'm like, man, oh man, I gotta learn this system. So um, anyway, uh, long story short, uh, that, was my, uh, that was my initial experience. Now, here, I'm gonna go real fast now. Here we go. So 
Big Book John says to me, not fast, Big Book John (laughs) says to me, if I don't see you at this meeting, I want you to call me. But I would often see him five days a week or four, so I only had to call him like three or four times a week. Three, right? But after a few weeks, excuse me, a couple of months of this, it came to me, I remember, I went to parochial school, so I had a little Bible uh, study. Uh, You can rest on Sunday, so I don't call him one Sunday. And I see him on Monday, and he sticks his finger in my chest, and he says, I told you every day, just like that. And he hit me in the chest like that, and he had my attention. And I said, "Uh, okay, yeah, 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 no problem, no problem. He says, by the way, what meetings do you go on the weekend? And I go, well, I go to these five here. And he says, no, no, no. See this guy over here, his name's Dan. You're going to go Saturday morning at 7 a.m. with him. Now, these are all God shots because watch how all this comes together and it even includes Paige. Watch how this goes now. So I go to this meeting. Dan introduces me to Ted F. Ted F. knows everything about AA history. Oxford Group, Emanuel Movement, Washingtonians, every pioneer. He knows the, the wife's maiden name. Like this guy knows like out of control. And we would meet at 6 a.m., six of us, and we'd sit and we'd just like suck in everything from Ted F. I could not miss that meeting. It became my favorite meeting. I got interested in AA history. So there's this woman I work with. She knows, she's also in AA, and she knows that I'm into, she wanted me to speak. And when I got there, she said, you know, our group history has, uh, has been written down. Are you interested in it? I said, hell yeah. So she hands me the thing, and my jaw drops. And I said, obviously, you have not read this. She said, what do you mean I haven't read this? And she looks at it. There's my father's name. So I'm speaking at my father's first home group. And it tells the story on how he, uh, they splinter off and they go to this other meeting, which just happens to be in my elementary school auditorium. I decide I want to go check out that meeting. I walk in. I'm greeted by a guy with a brogue. And I said, hey, anybody here know about the history of this meeting? And he goes, yeah, Joe. And I said, oh, that's great. Is Joe coming tonight? No. So uh, I said, okay, here's my card. See if he'll call me. He's not going to call. Please. Come on. I'm home. Same lazy boy chair. Phone's on my belly. I'm out cold. Saturday afternoon. Phone rings. He goes, is this Timmy B's son? Ooh, that hurt. (laughs) Mm. I was thrown off by it for a second, and I'm like, I can't do the, I've never been referred to that way. It just, it threw me off. And I said, yeah, I am. He says, well, you know the story about your father, right? And I go, well, yeah, the bus going to the Super Bowl. He says, yeah, 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 yeah. Meet me tomorrow. Okay, so I go. And uh, the more complete story is, uh, my father has 10 years. This guy, Joe, has one year. Joe gets on the bus after my father's has already been, had gotten on. They sit next to each other. They talk until Joe gets off. Joe gets off. Joe's going to something else. And my father dies in that seat. Last person to speak to my father. That I am seeing uh, 40 years later. 
doesn't stop there. These are, this this, this in, in, uh, assures me that I'm on a spiritual path. I am, I am wiring into AA, and the more I don't resist it, the more that's, that, that is available to beam into me. I've cracked my chest open, and I'm just a sponge. And um, so, uh, as I said, I, I, you know, had that experience and, 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 and all of that. And um, I, um, I retire. I, I, uh, uh, Joe and I became very good friends right up to his death in December of 2016, which is very interesting because I move here January of 2017. Like that chapter had just ended. And I get down here and I go to, I'm going all around different meetings and uh, one of the meetings I go to is change agents and the speaker's Paige W. And Paige is dressed like me and I'm like, this dude is like on fire, man. He's got his book, blue blazer, khakis. He's got his nice white hair. Like this guy, he's gonna, and I'm sitting, I'm sitting right where he's sitting right now and this is how close I am to Paige. And I'm looking for signs that I'm in the right place. I, I loved Raleigh, I, the meetings I had gone to, strong. I feel, I'm feeling it, I'm feeling it but I want more, I want more confirmation. And Paige goes, tells his story, I'm like enthralled, you know, like I'm, I'm sucking it all up. And he goes, and I was in the Navy. Oh, that's great. And I was on a submarine. Wow, <laughs> I never run into somebody else on a modern submarine. I meet some like old World War II veteran, but never another guy on a modern submarine. I go up to him and I'm like, Paige, man, you were on fire. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. What submarine were you on? Same submarine, years apart. Statistically impossible. Doesn't stop there. I'm going to a lot of meetings. I re meet Ray Glennon. We hit it off because he knows history really, really well on the macro level, but very specifically, Raleigh AA history can tell you where the meeting started, what year, who started it, like Rain Man kind of stuff. <laughs> and I'm like sucking it up. I'm writing notes. I want to like organize all the crap in my head. Dave C went down to Texas. I got it all. I got the whole thing. We go to where uh, in uh, in Kittrell, where the uh, detox house was was bought by some AA dudes and they were detoxing the people. Um, went to the, the Clarence Snyder Cemetery, uh, his headstone, which is in uh, Cameron. Uh, took pictures of the headstone. Um, uh, Oakwood Cemetery, all AA people that were identify, identifiable took a picture of the headstone, putting the stories together. He sponsored him. I'm eating it up. This is my thing. I don't have any other subject I like. Zero, like there's no subject on that. So, um, at some point, Ray keeps saying, George McShane, George McShane, George McShane. I'm like, yeah, George McShane, he was from New York, Con Ed, retired Con Ed. And I'm like, oh, he's from Queens. And I was from Queens. And I'm like, wow, this is wild. At this point, I asked Ray to be my sponsor. I shift from my New York sponsor to Ray. And now we're, uh, we're talking even more than what I just demonstrated. And um, 
I said, how long was George McShane here? I mean, like, are you talking about him like he's like been here 40 years? Three years. Like, how is that possible? That, that he's had all this impact. In hospice, they line his bed with like, I don't know the number of guys, I'll just make up a number, 10 guys to give him his 43-year 40 chip. I go to the convention, and it's like 2019, and uh, I see a dude from AA New York. I'm like, what the hell are you doing here? He says, oh, I'm with my sponsor. I said, oh, who's your sponsor? And he said, who his sponsor was? I, I don't know that name. He says, oh, no, he's from South Carolina. Again, why are you here? And he said, Dave C. And I'm like, oh, okay, so your sponsor knows Dave C. Okay, I got it. Now it makes sense to me. So, by the way, I'm going to uh, Soapstone Chapel tomorrow morning, Saturday at 8.30 a.m. You want to go? He goes, okay. On the way home, intuitively, something tells me to text him and remind him that I have two extra seats if he wants to invite anybody. He invites the sponsor. Sponsor sits in the front seat because he has more years. He sits in the front seat. But the beauty of that is, is now I've got his ear. And I go, where are you from? He goes, Queens. I said, I'm from Queens. He says, well, where, where did you live? I said, 87th Street. He says, so did I. I said, no way. So um, I'm not gonna tell you one little piece of that story because it's not as good as where we're going. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Ray won't stop with this George Machine crap. And I turned to this sponsor, I said, my sponsor won't stop on George. He says, oh, George McShane, I knew him from New York. He was great. Blah, 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 blah. He told me all the meetings he went to. One of them was the, my father's meeting that I told you I went to see, and the guy wasn't there, and Joe called me later. And um, I said to Ray, could you get a picture of George McShane? And he does. And I see the picture, and I vaguely know this face. And I said, can we get from Mike B a recording of George McShane? He says, oh yeah, he spoke at the convention, whatever, a couple years ago. I emailed uh, Mike, Mike sends me a recording. Who do you think he is? He's the guy from the wake who says, your father told me all about you knew it instantly, knew the, 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 the accent, the cadence. I asked Dennis, is that something he would say? He said, absolutely, this, you got him, this is the guy. Mind blower, connects me to my father all these years later. AA brings me back to my father. You'd think that'd be enough, right? No, I want more. I got, uh, my mom eventually got sick and uh, had bladder cancer and decided not to do any treatment, and I think appropriately. And um, my brother and sister were taking care of her and uh, upstate New York. And um, I never go out on a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday night. That's Martha time. Oh, I married that girl. We're still together. So <laughs> probably because of keeping open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights. So, but a guy asked a favor and said, will you speak in Nightdale on a Friday night? And he gave me like a two-month window, a two-month uh, lead time. 
So, talk to Martha, blah, blah, blah. She's cool. And uh, it's an 8 o'clock meeting. I never go to an 8 o'clock meeting. It's like too late. Uh, anyway, I'm doing it. I'm, you know, I bring a couple. I, I, I brought one, one new sponsee with me, and um, it's 10 of 8. Oh, wait, I missed one part. So my sponsee says, why don't you write your story for the fifth edition big book? I said, they don't want me. They don't want, they want the younger, they want more modern stories. They don't want my story. But then I decide I'm going to write it for me, not for them, for me. Like I know better, you know, first of all, that's one. And two, like just the exercise, it was cathartic to organize my thoughts on this thing. So I write the whole thing. I'm there early for the Nightdale meeting. I'll bring it home quick. I'm there early for the Nightdale meeting. I'm in Starbucks and I'm tweaking the last couple of lines. I finish, I close the laptop, I'm speaking to Denton on the phone. We happen to be talking about mothers. I go to the meeting, it's 10 minutes before the meeting starts, and I get a phone call from my sister. Mom passed 45 minutes ago. Know what I was doing 45 minutes before that? Tweaking the part of my story that involved her, it was the hardest for me to put into words because of the emotion of being left with my grandmother. This was an example to me on how we're all connected and that the purpose of conscious contact is not just limited to a higher power, it's conscious contact here. It's relationship building. It's coming here and putting the blood, sweat, and tears in even when people are shitheads, right? In our opinion at that moment. We're, they think we are too, but right? It is still coming back. It's making the coffee and 15 people say great coffee and two of them say, man, that was crap. And coming back the following week or day or whatever, and without resentment, working through those feelings, doing it again as service. That's the message for me for AA. If I want to keep it, I've got to give it away. If I want love, I've got to give love. One of my most um, spiritually guided moments of a day is having a sponsee on the phone and talking about real deal emotion, real deal spiritual revelation, understanding, journeying. And I think this recipe, and I, I'm a firm believer that the first 11 steps are really to prep you for good 12. And 12 is the starting point back up to the top to go back to, and, to, and again, and again. Rinse and repeat is the thing that I've learned here. Rinse and repeat. Consistency. You know, the beauty of a home group, the connection, the responsibility, which this group is very well known for. That sort of um, continuity, the, the, the uh, customs being um, maintained. These sorts of things are sureties for me, that when I come in, I know that 
I don't know, I haven't been in this place before, but I know Jerry's gonna be sitting there. That is, to me, that is the, um, the starting point for me feeling at ease. Peace, I believe, uh, would not have come to me if I did not get on a spiritual path after stopping drinking. I, I, I needed to put the bottle down for me to be open to the solution. And to me, the solution remains now and always will service to others. Thanks.